The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today. An ugly one on Wall Street as the year's first half comes to a close. My guest today is Adam Cecil, proprietor of Gravity Capital Management and author of Where the Money Is, Value Investing in the Digital Age, published last month by Simon & Schuster. I've known Adam for a while, and I guarantee that he will brighten your mood before this call is over. I'll also be taking questions toward the end of the call, so please type them in the chat box. And with that, Adam, welcome back to Barron's Live. Great to be with you, Lauren. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. So you were a longtime value investor in the Ben Graham mold until you had an epiphany on New Year's Eve, no less, back in 2014, when you recognized that the traditional tools of value investing no longer worked at a time of massive digital disruption. So I'd like to set the scene by reading a passage from your book that really stuck with me. I think it's a beautiful imagery and it reminded me that a long time ago, you used to be a journalist. <laughs> so you, you wrote, I remember sitting at my desk in the late afternoon on New Year's Eve 2014. First, I would look at the Empire State Building, which was glowing cheerfully in the winter gloom. Then I would look at a printout of my portfolio, which was not. That year, the market had advanced 13 to 14 percent, but my portfolio had declined 4 to 5 percent. You don't need to know a lot about investing to recognize that's a huge gap. So, Adam, after that epiphany, what happened next? How did you identify the source of the problem and what did you do about it? Yeah, well, it's an excellent question, Lauren. And I have to tell you, it wasn't so much as an epiphany. It was sort of a long grinding period of of pain and spiritual reflection. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I had been raised in the school of value investing, deep value investing. My first job was at Sanford Bernstein. And I really got drummed into me, you know, lessons like uh, reversion to the mean and buying cheap PE stocks. And as you say, as I write in the book, uh, around the middle of the last decade, that method stopped working. So there were two or three years of really quite poor performance before I figured out that I always wanted to remain a value investor, that value investing is and always will be the only surefire way to try to systematically beat the market rather than randomly guess, but that I personally uh, needed to make some tweaks to how I thought of value investing. And most specifically, I needed to widen the aperture of the lens to encompass, you know, digital stocks, because the the, the fact is that stocks like Alphabet and Amazon have looked expensive all the way up since they IPO'd, but they've massively outperformed the stock market. So that leaves value investors with an existential question. Either we're in for sort of dot-com bust 2.0 that's going to make the first one look like a picnic, or we need to recalibrate our tools. And I've come to the latter conclusion. 
I'm beginning to think this year, maybe it's both, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) (laughs) So what sorts of companies do you now look for when you're investing? Do they have common characteristics? Yes. Well, basically I'm looking for character, you know, companies that, that, you know, great value investors like um, Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch have always looked for companies with competitive advantages, companies that have an edge, that have a secret sauce, that to use Buffett's uh, great expression, have a moat. It's just that, you know, as I write in the book, in the early 21st century, the companies that have moats uh, are much more uh, different than they were back in the late 20th century when when Lynch was investing and when Buffett was investing, you know, companies like Coca-Cola and Gillette, you know, they've probably seen their best days, <clears throat> whereas companies like Alphabet and Amazon are now sort of the Coke and Gillettes of our era. And, you know, many, many companies that Lynch wrote about in his bestsellers, we would laugh out of the room today. You know, he, he, he had, you know, Stop and Shop was one of his big winners, Subaru, Toys R Us. Now, these are not companies for the digital age. So while I'm still looking for the same superior businesses that they were, I'm recognizing that what constitutes a superior business has changed. I think that's fair to say. Um, although in its day, Toys R Us was a great company and a great stock. It's just that it's it was. passed. Correct. So you argue in the book that price earnings ratios, which are really a favorite value investors tool, are the wrong metric to apply to growth stocks. And we, we've seen that when we look at certain growth stocks that have three-digit P ratios, that would make a value investor's stomach turn. Why yeah. are they the wrong metric and what well, is a better metric? Well, I don't think you're quite saying what I'm saying fairly, Lauren, to be honest. Okay. I'm, say- I'm saying that price-to-earnings ratios do remain the best metric. It's just that uh, Buffett's favorite metric of the current price-earnings ratio on reported earnings is, in this digital age, misleading. And it's misleading for, for two reasons, or related reasons. One is um, that the accounting for uh, software companies essentially penalizes current earnings in a way that it doesn't penalize uh, companies that are, you know, sort of non-digital companies. And if you look back into the history, as I did for while researching this book, and I write a little bit about it in the book, you know, Gap was created in 1933 when GM and U.S. Steel ruled the economic landscape. We're talking so, about we're talking about Gap accounting. Yeah, Gap accounting, right. general account, except generally accepted accounting principles, the standard that the SEC is basically requires all American companies to report under, they were, Gap was built for companies whose primary assets were were tangible. They were factories, they were inventory. Um, <laughs> today's companies, have, their, their biggest assets are intangible and their biggest assets, their biggest expenditures are research and development. And so, you know, so we have to, so Gap Accounting says, you know, if you spend $100 million on a factory, you can recognize that expense rateably over 25 years. So your annual expense is $4 million. But it says to Google, if you spend $100 million on R&D, you know, you have to write that $100 million off immediately. So, so you so, can't amortize it over time. That's right. So as I say in the book, $100 million of investment with $100 million of revenue for a for an old economy company means $96 million of profit. 
but for a tech company, it means zero dollars of current profit. So we have to understand that Gap is fallen behind the economic reality. And more and more people are recognizing this and trying to make changes. And I wouldn't be surprised if one day, you know, the folks in charge of Gap, the financial accounting standards boards, um, make some of these changes. But meanwhile, we need to make the adjustments as investors because we're not interested in sort of what the published financials say. We're interested in economic reality. So, so that's a how, big... how do you gauge that? What sort of adjustment do you make? Well, it's difficult. It's it's an approximation, but that doesn't mean it's not important. You know, stock options, for example, are a cost, and it's very hard to figure out what that cost is. But nevertheless, uh, Gap tries, and so we need to do that uh, with um, financial uh, statements. So what I've done basically is. Uh, you know, like I, in the book, I run through Amazon and I say, you know, um, you know, Amazon's reported mar margin in e-commerce was 2% and Walmart's reported margin is 6%. So if we're going to use Amazon's reported financials, that means we're assenting implicitly to, to the assertion that the largest e-commerce retailer in the world is a third less profitable than the world's largest brick and mortar. Uh, retailer, which is, as you know, the lawyers like to say, absurd on its face. So you have to kind of go through segment by segment. You know, here's what Amazon's reporting, but here's what I think economic reality is. It's not a precise science, but it's a very important exercise and important that we get it, as Buffett likes to say, you know, approximately right. Okay, so let's talk about Amazon in more detail. The stock is down more than 37% this year. It makes me wonder who's right, the bulls or the bears? What's the outlook? Well, look, I mean, one of the things that distinguishes a value investor is <clears throat> we're used to and we expect and we almost invite as long-term oriented investors declines in the market. You know, as, Buffett's, as, a Buff, as Ben Graham, Buffett's teacher said, the market in the short term, it's a voting machine. And in the long term, it's a weighing machine. So, you know, since it's been public in the last 20 some years, Amazon has appreciated, you know, I don't know, 100,000 percent. You know, the market's up less than 400 percent. So the market has weighed Amazon in the long term. But in the short term, it's voting against it. It's unpopular. You know, it's going up against very tough post-pandemic comps overbuilt its warehouse space, it overemployed some workers. And so now it's going through, you know, the inevitable growing pains. But, you know, if you step back and think about, you know, moats and superior businesses like Buffett and Lynch did, like who's going to catch Amazon? You know, who, who is going to catch them uh, as they continue to dominate e-commerce? They have almost 50% market share of all e-commerce transactions. Walmart, five or six years ago, tanked their margins to try to catch up. They have 7% market share of e-commerce. So if Walmart can't catch them, nobody's going to catch them. And meanwhile, they have 1% share of worldwide retail sales and 5 or 6% share of U.S. retail shares. Uh, I guess the only thing US that retail, could catch them uh, would, So I only, like Amazon. I was going to say, the only thing that could catch them would be a really down economy where retail sales incredibly suffer. Well, sure, temporarily, but you know, if you're going to be an investor, you got to live with recessions, babe. I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> but, but, but secularly, secularly, you know, what is Amazon's trajectory? What is the probability that in five, 10, 15, 20 years, 
they're going to be much bigger uh, and much more profitable? And the answer is virtually certain. So, you know, that's why Munger says, you know, if you can't stomach 50% downturns in the equity market, you probably don't deserve to be in the market. And if you are, you probably deserve the mediocre returns that are going to get, you're going to get from being afraid of such occasional dips. So is now a time to buy the stock? Well, you know, I'll put my money where my mouth is. I've been buying first half of 2022. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Google before, a parent company is Alphabet. What's the bull case for Alphabet at this point? Well, it's similar to uh, Amazon in the broad sense that, you know, uh, it, it has a, a, one of the few superior businesses in the digital age. And listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not a blanket cheerleader for all digital companies. I, I think most tech companies are going to suffer the same fate that all companies in any industry suffer, which is mediocrity or failure, unless they have an edge unless they have a competitive advantage, unless they have a moat. So Amazon has a moat and, you know, Google, in my opinion, has a moat. You know, they they have 90 X percent share of online search. And one reason you can tell they have a moat is because deep pocketed competitors have taken a run at them and failed. You know, Microsoft spent 15 billion dollars on Bing. Couldn't make it happen. Jeff Bezos hired the guy who wrote the first search program for Yahoo to try to build out his search effort some time ago. The guy quit after a couple of years in frustration and, and left to go uh, to Google. So these are competitors who've taken a run at Google's mode and haven't been able to do it. And, you, you know, you just contrast that with companies like Netflix, which I've never liked, precisely because what's the moat? What's the moat in Netflix? Like they have hit shows, but so does Disney, you know? They can produce occasionally good programming, but, you know, so can Apple TV. You know, capital in this business is not a barrier to entry. And, you know, Netflix just has to spend more and more capital every year to keep its to keep uh, its viewers around. And even then they're starting to lose viewers precisely because all these other deep pocketed competitors are not only getting into the business, but unlike Amazon and uh, Microsoft with Google, these competitors like Disney and HBO are actually succeeding. Well, it seems you were, you were wise to avoid Netflix for sure. So far, so good. Right. What are some of the other stocks that you like these days beyond Amazon and Alphabet? Well, I should say, by the way, that <clears throat> that's why, you know, we're, our, you know, my performance uh, across my separate accounts is, is generally down. Uh, and, uh, it's generally down a little more than the S&P because we own tech, but it's not down nearly as much as the NASDAQ because we've so far, knock on wood, avoided bad business models. So far, we've gotten competitive advantage spot on. So the market hasn't marked down our stocks 70, 80 percent like they have some of these like with Netflix and, 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 and Facebook. Boy, it would be time for another spiritual experience if that were the case. Indeed. Indeed. If I, that's right. If I, if I had that such a portfolio, I would be, you know, recalibrating again, but I'm thankful to be reporting that I'm not recalibrating. I've, I've you know. I've, yeah. I was going to ask you whether this year's market downturn has led you to question the no. premise of the book and the premise. Oh, no, if the anything, thing. it's, it's strengthened it. Because it's, it's strengthened it because <clears throat> remember, the market is open eight hours a day for 250 days. But meanwhile, business kind of 
chugs along. And, um, you know, I went back and read Bezos's comments in the first dot-com bust when his stock went from $113 to six. And he said, and he said, I looked, I came into work and I looked at the stock price and every day it was down. But then I looked at the internal business metrics and every day they were up. So the stock market is not my business and my business is not the stock market. And that's the essence of value investing is arbitraging between short-term perception of a, of a business and long-term reality. So, well, so no, if anything, if anything, this downturn has, has strengthened my conviction and, you know, over the long term, as Peter Lynch said, superior businesses win. And those, you know, and the, that victory will be reflected in the market. It's just that, um, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get from here to there. I mean, Apple, for example, which I own a little bit of, not a lot, but I write in the book that, you know, my buddies bought it when when uh, the iPhone was introduced. And it's been a huge success since 2007 when the iPhone was introduced. But what people forget is that four times in that history of 15 years, Apple stock has declined by a third. So you got to get used to these stomach churning events and you got to use them as a literally a gut check as to whether, you know, your business has a moat or not. And so far, so good for me. Um, you'd ask me about other stocks. I yeah. like in the, in the tech world, I love also Intuit, you know, Intuit is, uh, it's interesting because it has a, has two businesses. It has, um, you know, a very a relatively mature tax prep business with TurboTax, you know, TurboTax helps Americans, uh, one third of all Americans prepare their taxes. So, you know, that's a pretty highly penetrated market, but it's other business is a uh, QuickBooks, QuickBooks Online, which helps small businesses um, do their books, you know, keep their books. And it's all in the cloud. It's all fully on mobile. It's perfect for the small business gig economy. Um, its main competition is either Excel spreadsheets or the shoebox in the closet where people throw their receipts. So it's, a high, <laughs> so it's a very slick interface, very affordable for small businesses. And the price to value is extremely compelling because it helps you keep your beans counted in the back office so that you can run your business. And, uh, you know, Intuit thinks that they've tapped maybe 1% of the ultimate customers that they will tap. So they have a 99x percent uh, times opportunity. You know, even if they, even if they've, you know, exaggerated that by a factor of 10, they can still grow by 10x their QuickBooks Online subscribers. Do they and have competitors or viable well, competitors? I was just going to say, you know, besides the shoebox in Excel, their next largest competitor is a is a New Zealand company actually called Zero X E R O, and Zero is a good company but they have one third the subscribers and spend about one tenth of the marketing and the uh, R and D budget that Intuit spends. So when you have an awesome program that's only used by 1% of the users um, and you, you have three times more subs than the, the next viable competitor and spend 10 to 12 times more on marketing and R and D that, that they do, I think that qualifies you as an inevitable. You know, that's what Buffett used to call Gillette and Coke. They are inevitables. So I look for companies that are inevitables in this age. And <clears throat> I think that's entirely consistent with value investing. I, you know, not for nothing, but I think the whole value versus growth investing debate <clears throat> is a giant red herring. And, and really, as I look back on my investing career, did me a disservice to, to, to bifurcate those two schools of thought. And 
here again, we can you know, use Buffett as a compass. You know, he says there's no distinction between growth and value investing. All things being equal, more growth is better than less growth. The key is the moat. The key is the competitive advantage. So would you rather have a business that grows 10% for 40 years, or would you rather have a business that grows 30% for five years? And of course, the, <clears throat> the, the, the answer is the former. You'd rather have a long-dated growth business. And my point and the whole reason I wrote the book is that <clears throat> tech has the most of these those kind of businesses in today's economy. So you've referred to Buffett many times throughout the call. He's obviously had a huge influence on your own thinking. So tell me about Berkshire Hathaway. The stock is beating the market this year, although it's down a bit. Buffett has been buying shares of Occidental Petroleum. He's uh, done a great job for investors. Do you think the stock is still a bargain? And what do you think is the outlook for the company? Well, I own Berkshire Hathaway. <clears throat> you know, Lucky he, you. He, yeah, it's a compound. It's a compounding machine. You know, he is the Mozart of our business. There's never been another one like him, <laughs> and there probably never will. Um, you know, that said, he came of age in a world where the dynamics were very static. You know, after World War II, there was a clear leader in cola and beer and soap and you know newspapers dominated their markets they were monopolies and these are the companies he invested in you know right now it's very different kind of time where you know we have uh, so much dynamism and so much growth in the technological economy and if you can get the moat right like i think i've got it right with intuit you don't have to settle between a moat or growth <clears throat> you can have a moat like intuit's <clears throat> but with exponential growth. Buffett just never got, never saw that until he was, you know, 75 years old, which is why he missed Google, you know. And um, so I think there there are subtle differences that, that, you know, we as investors in the 21st century can can tweak his model. But, uh, you know, in terms of precedent, there's there's never been another one like him. There never one will be like, you know, no, won't be another one like him. And he's a great role model. Have you ever met him? I have. Yeah, I met him a, a few times. Yep. When I was working for Chris Davis at, at Davis uh, Select Advisors, I actually <clears throat> have a funny story. People were handing him $10 bills to sign, you know, <laughs> and I said, to hell with that. I'm going to I'm going to get him to sign a $1 bill. I don't want to waste 10 bucks. I'll just waste one. So he he liked that. <laughs> That's very Buffett-esque. Very Buffett. Tell us about one more stock you like beyond Amazon, Alphabet and Intuit. Um, well, look, there's some non-tech stocks out there that are really, you know, really quite good. Um, uh, there's, <clears throat> you know, ju just because tech, you know, software is eating the world doesn't mean that, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that only tech is, is, is good. So I write in the book about, you know, an aerospace stock called Heiko which is a great company that very few people have ever heard of, although I, I think I did write about it in Barron's a few years ago. And I edited that story, but remind us what the ticker is. It's a, It has two classes of stock, H-E-I and H-E-I-A. Um, okay. But, uh, but it's a great company. You know, it, it manufactures uh, generic aerospace parts. It has a lock on that market. And like Intuit, it has a very small share of a huge addressable market 
and it has like intuit a sustainable competitive advantage. You know, that's what I look for, as I say in the book, large share or sorry, small market share, large market, but with an edge. And so the edge allows you to penetrate that market for generations. So Heiko is very expensive. I'm not buying it here, but I own it and uh, extremely well managed by the Mendelssohn family who I write about in the book. Great story. Um, and, uh, you know, one for people to keep on their radar screen for sure. All right. Good to know. So I want to get to some listener questions. Leap picks up on your comments about Buffett and tech stocks and notes that Buffett openly admitted that he didn't invest in tech stocks because he couldn't weigh who would be the winners and losers, I guess, until he met Apple. But yep. he wonders whether it's difficult for anyone, much less a non-engineer, to truly assess whether a tech stock will or will not have a moat? And why do you feel you have that ability? Well, I think everyone has that ability. I, I sort of, you know, with all respect, reject the, the premise of the question out of hand. You don't need to be an engineer to understand whether Google has a moat or not. You just need to be a consumer, you know? You go into Google and search and then go into Bing and search. The difference is material. And Google tweaks its search algorithm twice a day to make it ever faster and more relevant. So this is precisely the point, Warren. Tech used to be a dom dominated by engineers and used to be a highly technical field uh, that it was hard for you know amateurs to or non-experts to gain an edge in. Now it's not. You know, we could go down the list. You know, we've talked about Amazon's moat. We've talked about Google's moat. We've talked about uh, Netflix's lack of a moat. Um, none of these have are, are premised in any sort of engineering wonky discussion. It's you know I used to call these stocks you know non-tech tech because they're con they're essentially consumer products, which mm -hmm. is by the way why why Buffett owns Apple. You know I've never liked Facebook, you know because for various reasons we, we can get into, but but these have nothing to do with engineering or technology. These have to do with basic consumer insights. What about semiconductor stocks? Do you get involved in that part of tech mm -hmm. at all? I do. Yeah, I, I, I do understand semiconductor stocks and I've owned off and on a couple of them. I don't own much right now. Um, but basically, there's a whole hidden world of semiconductor stocks. Basically, there's two kinds of semiconductor companies. There's the digital semiconductors, which make uh, semiconductors for storage and uh, memory. And that's a huge scale business. Intel Intel's the only one that's really ever earned a sustainable return on capital. I mean, we'll see what happens with NVIDIA and, and Taiwan. Those are potentially good business models. But, but basically, I basically decided I don't want to be in, invested in a business where the most successful executive of all time in that field has written a biography called only the paranoid survive like, <laughs> like that. That's an indication that it's a tough business, right? Yes. Like, yes. That's, a, that's a tough business. If only the paranoid survive, like, you know, you have to be counting on the executives to be paranoid every day. Kind Whereas, of feels like the investment business, Adam. No, no, <laughs> no. no. No, Buffett, Buffett said, and he's right. We're, we're the only profession where we can add value by going to the movies. Because <laughs> okay. at, at a certain point, you know, you do your analysis and Google's good and Amazon's good and Intuit's good. Okay, that's it. You know, it's better to just walk away and, and let it let it 
let it, you know, let it unfold. But, but the other semiconductor business, Lauren, which I studied five, six years ago is called the, the analog semiconductor business. And that, that they create, they make small batches of, uh, of semiconductors that are, uh, that, that capture analog uh, uh, functionality. So sound and temperature and uh, uh, heat and so forth. And, and those are great businesses for various reasons. And, you know, the two leaders in there, which are always on my radar screen, are Texas Instruments and uh, Analog Devices. Interesting. It's, it's such a fascinating area with, yes. you know, involved in so many other industries and, and so many other geopolitical ramifications and so forth. Yes, indeed. But, Let's talk about Apple again. Steve asked the question. He knows that Apple stock is down 23% year to date, but it's done better than other tech stocks. Do you think it has further downside to go or have investors capitulated? You know, I, I have no <clears throat> answer to the, the specific question. I, <laughs> I don't know where the bottom is. Nobody knows, you know. Generally speaking, stocks overshoot. You know, you think, oh, it can only go to 12 times earnings or whatever. And generally it goes worse than that. So. But on the other hand, Apple is a great business. Buffett has pointed out why it's a great business, and uh, I wouldn't bet against them. So Steve also asks, and I've, I've heard a lot of people say this, that unless Apple bottoms, tech stocks can't start to recover. Is there any truth to a statement like that? He's not suggesting it's true. He's, he's asking about it. Not in my book. I'm not a technical analyst, and uh, I encourage all your listeners to forswear technical analysis. You can look up how Buffett was early on in his career a technical analyst and how he uh, how he learned to put it aside pretty quickly. Interesting. Some of us here at Barron's kind of like it, and we've had some technical analysts on the program. One day I'm going to get you back on the program to debate the merits. <laughs> that sounds good. So Hal asks about Intuit. Isn't the business just a code that many companies could potentially replicate with AI? Uh, well, sure. Uh, theoretically, any uh, software can be replicated. So Google search can be replicated. Uh, Intuit, uh, Intuit software can be replicated. Um, so then you say, well, what's the moat? And the moat with Google search is consumer habit. Number one, you know, it, it, every every day, five and a half billion, six billion searches are done on 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 Google. Uh, and also they are throwing sharks and alligators into the moat by improving the search algorithm twice a day, precisely to make sure that no one makes a better search algorithm. Same with Intuit. Intuit has a slick uh, QuickBooks online program, but they have three times more subscribers than the nearest competitor. So they use that cash flow combined with their TurboTax cash flow to keep improving the product precisely to keep the competitors at bay. But he raises a good point because one reason Amazon is such a, a, a moated, formidable business is it's not just software. You know, to, to beat Amazon, you don't have to create a software program. You have to do that and create a logistics network kind of like UPS and FedEx have. So the combination of, a you know, their e-commerce presence plus their physical logistics network is is pretty 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 formidable. All right, we have a question from Gabriel who asks about other than Netflix, do you have thoughts about the streaming services wars? No, except to think that it's a war, and I don't participate <laughs> in wars. You know, I, 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 it's it's generally not a good idea to to try to pick a winner when they're all trying to cream each other. You know. 
Uh, I am like Buffett in that sense, uh, and like most value investors, I want to come in when the war's been fought and there's a clear winner. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I think that's well said. And I will close with a question of mine. I am dying to know what you make of crypto. My crypto colleagues here keep writing about a crypto winter. Yeah. But what do you make of the explosion of interest in cryptocurrency? Well, I, I have a sort of middle road think, thinking on crypto that I think fits with my sort of new value. And I'm putting air quotes around that uh, new value in the sense that you know, I don't hate crypto the way a lot of people, traditional value investors hate crypto because it's it's new and I don't really understand it. I mean, I've, I've spent some time understanding it and it is very potentially valuable, you know, in helping the blockchain function. You know, Bitcoin, for example, I understand how Bitcoin helps the blockchain function and I understand why the blockchain is is a better mousetrap than, you know, what we have now with some of our traditional financial and legal systems. So I'll grant that. But on the other hand, I think the crypto lovers have to grant me, you know, the, the, the answer to the rhetorical question, like, what is crypto? In the end, it's just a currency or a storehouse of value or a way to get the blockchain to function. And it's, you know, it's, it's a made up currency, but that's OK. I mean, so is gold. You know, what's gold? Like, why is gold valuable? Because people think it's valuable. So enough people have thought that crypto is valuable, which is fine. But in the end, what distinguishes it from Amazon and Google and Intuit and the rest of the world's great businesses is it's not dynamic. It doesn't change. It's not going to sell more product. It's not going to be able to raise prices. It's not going to be able to enter new geographies. At the end of the day, crypto is just like what Buffett said about gold. It just sits there in a room and stares back at you. <laughs> it's inert. It's just a currency. So I'm not interested in currency investing. I'm interested in, as I say in the book, I'm interested in, in investing in moated businesses that compound over time and make me a lot more money over time because they're superior businesses. Well, I think crypto as a market has been anything but inert, but your point is very well taken <laughs> when you speak of crypto as an asset. Yeah. So Adam, we have to leave it there today, which I regret because this has been a wonderful conversation. I always learn more when I talk to you. And I have to tell you, I learned a lot from the book. I've covered the markets for a long time, but the book is so clearly written and you've got some wonderful examples in there. Well, I appreciate it. And I hope your your listeners and the Barron's community at large uh, picks up a copy and, and, and gets the same benefit out of it. I enjoy writing it and my, and my intention in writing it was to help people think through, you know, how to navigate the 21st century economy in a rational, disciplined, value-based way instead of just sort of saying, oh, well, I guess we got to buy tech because as we can see in 2022, that is not the right strategy. I, I also liked your comments on the dichotomy between value and growth and why people shouldn't think of them as binary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, I, I looked into it a little bit, I mean, and I remember this because I was on Wall Street, you know, someone should write an article about it. You know, Morningstar basically created this, the value versus growth, because because people were, you know, baby boomers were learning how to retire and they needed, you know, they needed some sort of commonsensical way to, 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 to distinguish between mutual funds. And so Morningstar came up with these, all these style boxes. And, you know, I get how it was useful, a shorthand, but the longer I'm around, the more I really realize it's actually, not useful. It's actually deleterious and, and, and removes 
removes intelligence from the uh, from the equation instead of adding to it. Well, you have added to our intelligence. So thanks very much for joining me today. Lauren, and thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Great. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Thanks for your great questions. Tomorrow, if you want to know more about crypto, the subject is the darker side of money, crypto and the law on Barron's Live. Lucas I. Alpert, the financial investigations reporter at MarketWatch, will discuss the evolving legal landscape for cryptocurrencies with Michelle Benedetto Neitz, a professor of law at Golden Gate University and an expert on blockchain regulation. Until then, everyone, stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.